Good morning, and a really warm welcome to you all to our service of worship here at Ladywell Baptist Church at the beginning of this new week. We really want to make you feel welcome and part of our service together, whether you're a member or a regular attender of Ladywell or not. It's just great to be together and to worship God, to start a new week on that positive note where we focus on him who will carry us through whatever this coming week will hold. As we come to our worship this morning, we are going to be uh, focusing again uh, on some of the closing chapters of Genesis. We only have uh, a few Sundays left in Genesis before we're finished. It's taken us a year, um, and yet it's been hopefully an encouraging and a challenging one, uh, and it will be so today as we consider again uh, the life of Joseph and what that means for us here today. But to frame the time that we have just now and put it in its proper context, that whatever our week has held, whatever we've gone through, whatever we have enjoyed or endured, uh, we come together around God's word in Revelation chapter 4 and hear these words. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And just a few verses prior to that, we hear a repeat of those words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And however our week has gone, however we've entered into this time uh, to worship together, uh, we're reminded that we come not to feel good about ourselves, although we do want to feel good, not to be um, filled up and encouraged by God, although we surely will feel encouraged by him and filled by his spirit and his word. We come to pour ourselves out in offering to God, in worship, in praise, in thanksgiving. We want to honor him who has created all things and calls us to come before him and know him and worship him. And we aim to do that in ascribing him all honor and glory and power, for he is a holy, holy, holy God. So we're going to worship him together in just a few moments in song, but before we do, let's pray together. Our holy God, we thank you for all that you are to us. We read those words in Revelation and are reminded that you are the author of all creation. You have called into being all things for your own good pleasure. Lord, to glorify your own majestic name. And so, Lord, we ask that in this time this morning, however we come to worship, whatever our expectations are of this time, that we would pour ourselves out in praise and in worship and thanksgiving to you. For you are our wonderful God, our heavenly Father, our Lord, and the one in whom we can trust. You have sent your Son to be our Savior, to redeem us, to change us, to shape us and mold us, to have our sins forgiven and our lives lived in holiness and in righteousness, all for your glory, for that is what we have been created for in the first place. So, Lord God, we ask for one another. We pray that you would bless each one of our fellowship that is gathered in this time to worship you. We ask that you would build us up, that you would inform us, that you would reveal to us something of who you are and exactly who we are and why we should come and fall down before you in our time this morning in praise. Lord, you are a wonderful God 
And we ask that you would receive our worship and our thanksgiving in this time this morning. And Lord, we ask it all in our Saviour's precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be coming now to God's Word and we're going to be reading uh, Genesis 42 as we continue our series in Genesis, specifically at this point looking at the life of Joseph. We're reminded that over previous weeks Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He has been um, working in the house of Potiphar before unjustly being cast into prison. He's now been released from prison and brought into the service of the Pharaoh of Egypt himself and made essentially the prime minister uh, of the whole of Egypt, given charge over uh, all of Egypt. And now we find that um, those dreams that God sent to Pharaoh, that there would be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt and seven years of famine have come to pass. That the years of plenty have come and have gone. And in that time, Joseph has stored up a huge reserve of food. But now the seven uh, years of famine have come. And it's not just Egypt. The whole of the ancient world is suffering under this famine. People are going to starve to death unless they can find food. And it turns out that there is food in abundance down in Egypt. And we pick up in Genesis chapter 42. And there we read, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and no one, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let them, the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said this to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And we ask that God will bless the reading of his word this morning. Hello everyone. I hope all is well with you and your families. Let us pray. Loving God, we come to you today and thank you for the privilege of praying for others. We are so often the recipient of others' prayer and understand how powerful prayer can be. We thank you that through your name we can come boldly before you and pray with confidence, according to your will, and know that you will hear us. Loving God, help those who are dear to us, who are near and far, and we bring each of them before you now. We hold in your presence all who are being cared for in this church, and may they all know your presence with them, and that you are their strength, their healing, and their salvation. We lift up those in our town and those in authority and leadership, both locally and throughout the world, and pray that their lives would be filled and overflowing with the power of your love so that they can make a difference in this world and bring honour to you. We ask for your help in reminding all of us and those that the most significant thing we can do in this life is simply to love you. Fill all of us and those with the Holy Spirit so that we and they can act like you in every situation. We know that we and those we pray for always fall short of your perfection, but help us to do better. Loving God, keep us under the shadow of your mercy in this time and sustain and support the anxious and fearful and lift up all who are brought low. 
that we may rejoice in your comfort, knowing that nothing can separate us from your love. Help us to put our trust in you and keep us safe. May your love that never ends be our comfort, strength and guide for the well-being of all and the glory of God. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. How would you describe your faith? Would you describe that journey of life and of discipleship with God as being smooth and unimpeded, as being easy and straightforward, where you're constantly learning and growing and maturing in this lovely straight line uh, and you can see the future just rolling out ahead more of the same? I'm guessing probably not. And if that does describe your life, I would really love to meet you and sit down with you and have a coffee and just talk about how that's Uh, how that's come to be. The life of almost every Christian disciple is probably best described as a somewhat winding road. Sometimes we're going forward. Sometimes it seems like we're going back and we're getting worse than we were at an earlier point in life. And other times we seem to be drifting from one side to the other, a little bit uncertain, a little bit aimless, and not really sure that we are heading in the right direction at all. It's messy, it's long, it's hard. We endure many trials and temptations and struggles and we get frustrated by that, don't we? We want the clear and unimpeded route. We want to see things clean and straight and simple. And yet life simply isn't like that. That's not the way uh, that we work. And interestingly enough, it's not the way that God works. We would think perhaps it should be because God is a God of order and of control and yet it's precisely in his order and in his control that we find he leads us down a path that is very often from our perspective far from straight. In the story uh, that we have set before us this morning in Genesis 42, 43 and 44 we have again the life of Joseph and we can see within the life of Joseph and of that of his family God is leading them somewhere. There is a goal, a destination in mind. He's told Adam and Eve back in the beginnings of Genesis that there will be an end to the sin they've brought into the world. God will raise up a son of Adam and Eve who will crush the serpent's head, the one who has brought all this misery into the world, who will defeat sin and death. And we find that that despite the fact that, that God has promised this, this person still hasn't come along. He's still not here. And we're many generations down the line. He's promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that this line of this child will come through their particular family and yet he still isn't here. And yet we can see as we read through these three chapters that God is still leading his people. We sing that song sometimes, don't we? All the way my Savior leads me. And it's one of those songs that I I can't help but smile when we sing when I think that When we consider those words, again, the tendency in our mind is because God is leading me, it will be a straight and unimpeded path. We will just walk forwards with the Lord and all will be well. And yet, all the way my Savior leads me doesn't mean that. It means wherever I go and whatever it is I'm doing, God will continue to be my leader and my guide. And the path might wander about all over the place. I might have to go through some very dark and difficult times as Joseph and his family must. And yet I know that God will lead me out the other side. And that is what we find here. 
We're encouraged as we remember that Moses is telling the people of Israel their history here as they have been led by God out of Egypt and so quickly have found that they're not walking in a straight line from Egypt into the promised land. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years as God refines them and prepares them for the life that is to come. And so it is with Joseph and his family, and so it is with us, that our lives don't seem to go the way we want very often. And yet through it all, God leads us to refine us for the role that is to come and the life that one day we will have with him in the new heavens and in the new earth. And in Genesis 42, we see that sometimes God leads us via an indirect route. Look at how much time it has taken to get from the Garden of Eden all the way down through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob to this point. The Messiah still hasn't come and yet God is still leading his family towards that destination. We've seen how the family has torn itself apart because of selfishness, because of sin, a complete lack of righteousness and faithfulness to one another as well as to God. And yet God still leads. He's taken Joseph from his family. They've sold him into slavery. He's gone down into Egypt and now has been elevated to the highest position in the land under Pharaoh so that he might be a savior, not just to the people of Egypt through the seven-year famine that is gripping the ancient world but also to his own family, so that the line of the Messiah will carry on through Judah, we understand looking back, and down to the coming of Jesus. It's crazy, it seems insane to us that God would take 20 years and go to all of this trouble when surely there must have been an easier way to get Joseph where he needed to be. And yet this is the path that God has chosen in his wisdom to mold and shape Joseph into the kind of man he is in these chapters. And so we find that Joseph has prepared Egypt well for the famine that's come in the the preceding section. And come chapter 42, we find that um, Egypt has a plentiful supply of food where the rest of the ancient world is starving. And so Jacob sends his sons, minus Benjamin, uh, to preserve his his last favorite son, Um, And he sends his other sons down into Egypt to buy grain. And they come before Joseph and they don't recognize it's him. He's changed so much. It's been 20 years. They've changed so much. And they certainly don't expect to see him anywhere. They certainly don't expect to see him sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. That, That is impossible. And so they don't recognize him. They come and they plead for food. And Joseph leads them on a bit of a merry dance. Again, there's no direct route here. Joseph pushes them and pushes them and pushes them to have them understand something of what they have done to him. And we get in this chapter the beginnings of that realization. They begin to understand we are being paid back for the terrible thing we did to our brother. We should never have treated him like that. For all, he was a bit of a pain in the neck. And now we are finding that we are at the mercy of another man and there is nothing we can do. We simply, like Joseph, had to cast himself on our mercy that we didn't give him. We will now have to cast ourselves on the mercy of this man and pray that he will show mercy to us. And Joseph does. He gives them their grain and in the end he even refunds them their money. Although we also understand that he keeps one of them captive. He holds one of them in prison and again it's a lesson that they don't immediately understand. 
but it forces them to have to come back down to Egypt to keep casting themselves on the mercy of Joseph. Because Joseph remembers the dreams he had, the chapter says. It's not just that his brothers would bow down before him as they did in chapter 42. We find his whole family will come and will bow down before him. And that will necessitate the bringing of his whole family's household down into Egypt. So they must return. The way is winding. It's not straight and clear. And yet, this is the way that God is leading his people at the beginning of this journey, where they're going to go down into Egypt and not come back for centuries. But when they do, they will be better equipped to be a nation under God and not just one little family, as wealthy and as powerful as Jacob's family had become. And so we find that although the quickest route between two points is a straight line, it's not always the most effective route. And if we desire to grow as God's disciples, sometimes God must lead us into places and circumstances we would rather not be, but are necessary to shape us and mold us into the sort of person that will be used by God. If you have ever been an apprentice um, or you have ever been um, a, a student under somebody else, then you'll understand something of this. When you go to your new place of work, you will um, see that it would be far easier for more experienced employees to do the job that you've been given. They could do it in seconds, whereas you take hours to, to do this new job that you've been given, whatever it might be. It's going to take time for you and you're going to make mistakes, you're going to get things wrong, and it's going to be a lot of hassle when it would be easier to get get someone more experienced to do it. And yet, they are experienced precisely because they have gone on the same journey that you did. They started as an apprentice who knew little and have grown through the experience of making mistakes, of taking hours to do the job, and over time it's shortened to minutes and then seconds, and they've learned the wisdom and the craft of the, 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 the discipline that they are uh, working in. And so will you over time. It's the same if you go to university. Um, when you start, you realize how little you know. When you finish, you realize how little you know, but you have a greater appreciation for the field that you have studied. You have an understanding, the framework to learn and develop that you didn't have in the first place. And so we find that the fast-track approach to just rushing through everything and getting to the end that we desire because we want to get to the goal will only lead to greater failure. To sit an apprentice in the seat of the chairman of a company and have him run everything when that apprentice knows nothing is lunacy and will result in the complete destruction of the company. There needs to be the gaining of wisdom and experience to shape them for that role or whatever role it may happen to be. And so it is for us as Christian men and women. We want to be mature. We want to be fully grown, well-rounded individuals, disciples and servants of God. And yet, in order to get to that place, to sit in that seat, we need to go through an apprenticeship. And that apprenticeship, it transpires, will be a winding road that will take in the whole of our lives, but will result in our coming before God when Christ returns and worshipping Him and serving Him in perfect glory forever. That is our desire. That's the goal, to be a well-formed, mature disciple, however God leads us on the path through life to get there. God sometimes leads us on a very indirect route, 
in order to have us grow. God sometimes, in chapter 43 we read, leads us back to go forward. It's not just that the path is winding. Sometimes we actually have to go back. And as we look at the chapter, we see Joseph's brothers are led back through what they did to Joseph to understand their guilt and their shame over the conflict that has never been resolved. They've never really dealt with this. Their family hasn't really dealt with it. And to bring about resolution, the whole thing needs to be laid bare before them in order for them to understand and see how sinful they have been. Simeon is kept in jail. The brothers are told to go home. They return home with all of the grain that they wanted and provisions for the road and even all their money. Joseph didn't charge them anything. And yet they've had to leave one of their own behind. For the survival of their family, they've had to sacrifice another one of Jacob's sons. And so we find that nobody is happy with this, and yet it's necessary. How are they going to argue with the Lord of the land? And Simeon has been in jail probably for a year by the time the brothers eventually return once their grain runs out again. Jacob is not happy at all with them going down. In fact, he says in the passage that that we're just not going back. I've lost one son in Joseph, now another son in Simeon. I'm not losing a third son. You're not going back. And then when there is no other alternative, they have to. No one's happy about it. And yet Jacob realizes now he simply has to trust in God that he'll do what he will do for the best of God's people. But it's been a long and a hard lesson to get him there. Jacob's still learning, even in his old age. And we mustn't forget that Jacob must face the reality that this is the end for his family. There are serious stakes at play here. Perhaps God has another way of working this out and he's just going to leave us and draw up another family from obscurity. But they go. They trust in the Lord. The brothers are frightened of becoming slaves, we read in verse 18. And Joseph is happy to let them think that this is going to be the case. They are utterly within his power. They are learning what it is to be in the power of one greater. Not just of Joseph, but what it is to be within the power, within the grasp of God, who can say to them, come here or go there or have this or I will take that. And they have no ability to stop him doing any of those things. And Joseph takes them back to see what they did to him, to see their sinfulness and to see that going forward they need to change. It's an experience that we've had, I suspect, in many different avenues of life. When I think back on my life, one particular case comes to mind when I was a student. I had to write an essay on the book of Micah as part of a a course I was doing at Bible College on uh, the Hebrew text of an an Old Testament book. And studying the the Hebrew text of Micah, I had to write um, an essay on a particular aspect of Micah's Uh, of Micah's prophecy and I had got to the the night before I'd been working for weeks on this essay it was 4,000 words um, and I had got to the night before the deadline and there was this horrendous moment at eight o'clock in the evening it's a memory that will go with me to my to my grave Um, at eight o'clock in the evening before the deadline at four o'clock the following day and I realized the whole way I'd been writing this essay simply wasn't going to work And so I had a choice. 
keep going and hand in something that I knew wasn't going to be up to scratch or stop and essentially start again from scratch with less than 24 hours to go before the deadline. Replace weeks of work with 20 hours worth of work. But it had to be done. To simply forge ahead would have resulted in a failure which was utterly pointless. If you're headed in the wrong direction, the only wise course of action is to turn around and go back until you get to the point where the right path can be resumed again. And that's what I had to do with this essay. And in the end, in God's providence, it all worked out fine. Because I stopped and went back, realized where I'd gone wrong, put that right, and then went forward again. And the path was more straightforward as a result of doing that. And so it is with our lives. Sometimes we need to stop and realize the sinfulness of our behavior, of our circumstances, whatever it might be, and go back, repent of what has been done, learn the lessons of that so we don't do that again, and then walk forward down the direction that God would have us go. We sometimes don't realize just how sinful we've been against God about how hurtful we've been to other people, about how we've been dogged in the pursuit of this particular interest of mine, despite the fact that it's doing damage to those around me, to the church, to my own life, whatever it might be. And it's sometimes only when we've gone through this experience of being brought to the realization of our sinfulness, as it's replayed with us as the victim, that we realize just how awful things have been, how much grief and hurt has resulted, and how much we need to repent of what we've done and go forward anew. The key barrier to this is we would often rather be seen to be right, even if we've taken a wrong turn somewhere, than actually be right and admit our mistakes. And it's the classic joke, isn't it, that when you have a man and a woman in a car and the woman says to the man that, Um, why don't we just stop and ask for directions? It is the last thing that the man will ever countenance. He will never consider stopping and asking directions because that admits his weakness and inability to navigate well as, as a man and the husband of the house and so on. And so it is with our lives. We would rather not admit our weakness and failure, but to do so is the only means by going back is the only means of then going forward. And so we find Joseph leads his family on this merry little dance which gets them to realize the true depth of their sinfulness, of their lack of faithfulness, not just to him, but to God. And we find that in the end, they're able to to move forward. They begin to process what they've done. We find that God sometimes leads us by an indirect route to have us go forward to mature. We find that God sometimes will lead us back to enable us to then go forward. And we find in chapter 44 that God sometimes leads us forward when we would rather go around. And this is perhaps the most interesting thing of all. We all want to just get from A to B, but we often don't count the cost of of the sacrifice we will have to make to get from A to B. It's one interesting thing that I've found in my own life. I will spend hours reading the biographies of great Christian men and women. Men and women who have sacrificed so much so that they can become better missionaries or scholars or pastors or whatever else. They've poured hours, hundreds, thousands of hours of their lives into careful study and, um, and whatever else it might be. Service to God, prayer. 
And I will rather read of them for hours than take those hours and go on that same journey myself. For all that I'm inspired and built up and encouraged, and I I would wholeheartedly encourage the reading of biographies, generally um, to all of you, but also to Christian biographies specifically. But the danger is that we become so enamored with the lives of these people that we don't go on the same journey that they went. We want to be something like them. We want to be mature and knowledgeable and wise and capable. And reading about other people making that journey won't get us there. Going on the journey ourselves will get us there. And sometimes we do have a way forward that God presents to us, but we would rather go any other way than take that route because it makes us uncomfortable. Because we've got to sacrifice. We've got to give up what we enjoy just now in order to have something greater later on. And we simply don't want to have that. In Genesis 44, we find Joseph really testing his brothers. We find that they come back and he fills their food, uh, their, their bags with as much food as they can carry. Um, and he takes um, again their money and replaces it back in their sacks which is troubling the brothers deeply because it looks like they've stolen the food or stolen their money and that they're going to be accused, charged of theft later on. And we find that he takes his own silver cup and puts it in Benjamin's sack. Benjamin has had to come down to Egypt because they were going to starve to death if he didn't. And in chapter 43, the brothers make their return to redeem Simeon from jail. Poor Simeon that's just been left as good as dead in jail for a year, up to a year, and they return with Benjamin, knowing full well the risk. And Joseph sees his moment, because he knows that if Benjamin comes and he can keep Benjamin, he has them. Because he has Jacob at that point. And so he sets up this situation where it looks like Benjamin has stolen not just the grain, not just the money, but has stolen the personal cup of the prime minister of Egypt. He is definitely going to jail and almost certainly going to be executed for something like this. And the brothers fly into a panic when it all comes to light because they know this is as good as going to kill their dad back home in Canaan. This is it. They can't go back home without Benjamin. So what are they going to do? It's an impossible situation. And so we find Judah stepping to the fore. Fascinating. Judah... One of the most deplorable characters of all of the brothers that Joseph has, as we cast our minds back two weeks um, to to the the events uh, of Judah's life in that little gap between um, Joseph being sold into slavery and going down into Egypt and then um, Joseph uh, serving in, in the house of Potiphar. And we find that Judah is an absolutely appalling character. He does all sorts of truly dreadful things. And through him, this guy, the Messiah's line is going to come. God's going to preserve Jesus' family line through someone as sinful as Judah. And now we see that Judah has changed. His eyes have been opened, as we read in those Uh, chapters earlier on in Genesis. A realization of his sinfulness has come. The family is going to disintegrate. Everything is going to fail. And Judah steps up and says, take me. Whatever you would do to Benjamin, take me. I will go and stay in prison. I will place myself completely at your mercy. Just let the boy go home because it is going to kill dad if he doesn't. Take me instead. Judah is willing to go through the direct route to just take the pain 
for the sake of the rest of the family. Because he's grown. He's matured. He could have concocted some other story, gone back, tried to, tried to sort of sell some kind of story to Jacob that really there was nothing else they could do and it was just an accident. And they're used to lying to their dad. And yet he doesn't. He lays everything on the line, not just for the sake of Benjamin, but for the sake of his brothers, so that none of them have to make that sacrifice and for the sake of their dad. And as we end chapter 44, and as we look forward into chapter 45, Joseph just gets to the point where he sees how much his family has changed. He can't help himself but reveal who he is to his brothers. And this great moment comes that we'll cover uh, next, uh, the next time we're back in Genesis in, in a couple of weeks' time. God leads his family and leads Judah specifically down the quick and direct route which is far more painful than, than the winding road that Judah would rather take at this point, rather go anywhere but here. And so we find not only is Benjamin saved, not only is Jacob saved, but the line of the Messiah is carried on. God is leading his whole family through this together. It's not just Judah that God is going to use. He's going to use all of the 12 tribes of Israel and he will preserve them all, lead them all into the future. And it begins here. There is a time when we simply have to put our head down and plow onwards, even though it's going to be really, really difficult, but necessary. There isn't another faithful way for us to go. We have to grit our teeth and bear it, knowing that God is with us and will strengthen us to the task, or reveal to us where we've wandered off the track and bring us back so that we can continue forging ahead. This is why family is so important. You can see it in this story. They support one another. They enable one another to keep on the right path. And so it is for us. You need your Christian brothers and sisters because they keep you on the right path. We all need each other. We must stay true to the path that God has called us to wherever we are and whatever we are doing. Even if it means taking up something we would rather avoid or if it means giving up something we would rather keep but forging ahead down that path because Christ and the life that we have in him is worth it all. There are many sacrifices we must make as Christian people. Things that we give up, things that we take on, conversations we need to have if we're going to be faithful and we desperately don't want to, but the path is clear and unimpeded and we do have to go that way. The sacrifice will be worth it all and that is the path to greater maturity, devotion and closeness to the Lord. Our journey is often erratic, it's often bumpy, and nowhere are we promised an easy and a smooth ride. What we are promised is that God will go with us through it all and by his word will guide us. This is why it's so significant when we read those words at the beginning of John's Gospel that that the Word of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come and taken on flesh. He dwells with us in our midst. He is where we are. He experiences what we experience. And then as we cast our eyes forward into the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus comes and becomes like us so that He can die for us so that we can be redeemed. And then be led on by him in the life that he has for us. Christ took the hard path. He went the way that had to be 
in order to have us saved and redeemed, a people beyond number from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we are called to take up our cross and walk the same path as Jesus. Sometimes God is going to lead us on an indirect route where we can see where we think we ought to be and yet He's going to take us on a winding path that will lead us to being more mature than we were at the beginning. Sometimes God is going to lead us backwards rather than forward because we desperately need to repent of our sin, cast ourselves upon Christ, have Him forgive us and reopen our eyes to see where we went wrong so that we are better able to go forward. And sometimes God is going to have us walk forward into a difficult and hard circumstance we would desperately like to avoid but can't. For down that path is where we must go if we want to follow Christ and be mature in our service and in our worship of God. In the end, what we desire is to serve Him and worship Him, to get to the right destination at the end. And have him work out on the way where we're to go and what we're to do. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And what he desires is that we come to that good end. He will do whatever is necessary in your life to get you to that place. Even if it's hard. So keep on keeping on following in Christ's way, living a sacrificial life of service to Him is the only way for us to go, however hard it would be, but all the way, my Savior leads me. Amen. As you prepare to go back out into this coming week to live for God and serve Him, I want you to go knowing the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.